we were uh, left off on page two last week, <clears throat> and I'm going to constantly ask, <laughs> was it page two? Okay, just to make sure. And I saw us at B, right? Oh, is it C? Okay. I <laughs> see. Every, everybody's keeping me accountable. <laughs> All right. Well, C is where we'll pick up. And so we were talking about the Holy Spirit, and so we wanted to focus on the nature of the Holy Spirit. And one of the things you see a lot is that there are people who don't understand the Holy Spirit Many people who believe that the Holy Spirit is not a person, that he's just some kind of a force that takes control of you and then, you know, you are not able to control yourself. And so a lot of those people would go back into the Old Testament and they would see places where, uh, you know, David danced before the Lord and such. And, and so they, they don't believe that the Holy Spirit is a person and we want to show you that he is a person and so he is uh, one of the persons of the Godhead, and uh, he has a role that is different from the Father and the Son in the outworking of the decree. And so the Holy Spirit is typically referred to as the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost in the King James. And I do want to clear that up because, you know, you have this uh, version of Scripture. In it, and look, out of nearly 100 references to the Holy Spirit, only four times in the New Testament does it translate the Holy Spirit. And so some some people then say, you know, they it gets you get this mystical view of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, right? Yeah, and our view of ghost in the American culture is something just completely, you know, mystical. <laughs> but it's not really Holy Ghost. And every reference you'll see this ninety uh, references to the Spirit use the term Holy Ghost. And so the translators in the 16th century had questions about the use of the Holy Spirit in Scripture, even though the Greek and the Hebrew make no such distinctions. And so you see that it translates it in the original Holy Spirit. Um, and so their view of ghost, and this comes back from the translators in the early centuries. The use of the neuter pronoun itself also uh, kind of lends to an inanimate translation of the Holy Spirit as an inanimate object or not a person. And so you'll see that um, in a couple of places where the Holy Spirit is used and it's re referred to in a neuter. And normally you don't do that, right? Because if, uh, if I said, look at Don, what a thing you are. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> you wouldn't refer to people as a thing, right? Normally. Uh, and then when you are in a neuter, um, neuter uh, declension, uh, most of the time you, when you refer to something in a neuter, it's, it, you're talking about an inanimate object. Uh, but you can see that and we'll prove to you that the Holy Spirit is a person. And so the Holy Spirit also has created controversy over um, uh, this uh, re reference to itself has created controversy over the person of the, whole, of the Holy Spirit. Several times in the book of Romans, the spirit is referred to in the neuter. So there are, however, many proofs that the Holy Spirit is a person. Now, I give you uh, um, this from Thiessen's uh, lectures in systematic theology. And I, I like Thiessen. I, Thiessen, I think that he would be uh, not a bad theology and some of the things that he, um, he covers. Now, notice he lists the facts that the Holy Spirit's reception of personal... Uh, treatment is proof of his personhood. And so let's look at some of these in um, Acts 5, 9. 
the Holy Spirit can be tempted. And so you don't tempt a thing. It would be like me saying to this chair here, you know, here, here's a piece of cake. <laughs> is the chair going to be tempted by that? He's not tempted by that. Uh, the chair is not tempted by that, but a person can be tempted. And so here you find the issue of uh, Ananias and Sapphira. And, um, you know, you know the story, or maybe you, you don't, of the fact that um, in the early church, the uh, believers were uh, selling their possessions and giving things to those believers who didn't have. And Ananias and Sapphira wanted to sell their possessions, and they wanted to participate in that, but they didn't want to give everything. So they wanted to have the appearance that they were doing what everyone else was doing, but they didn't want to give it all. Now, that's this is very interesting here. And verse 1 of chapter 5, But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and bought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart uh, to lie to the Holy Spirit. And so notice, you'll see again that he can be lied to. That's on number two here. And so you can't lie to a thing, right? Can I lie to this cheer? <laughs> I guess even if I told the cheer, you know, you're a beautiful looking chair and it looks <laughs> dirty and old. It's not lying to a chair. You lie to a person. Um, and notice he, uh, why did you lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land? So this is what you would probably call, we would say today, is a little white lie. I mean, they did give some of the money. They just, just didn't give it all, right? And who did they lie to in this context? It was to the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, while I remained, was it not in thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And so here you see that the Holy Spirit is seen as God, right? In Scripture. Verse 5, and Ananias hearing these words fell down, and he gave up the ghost. Now, I like this. <laughs> I say he gave up the ghost, but this word is that he breathed out. You know, back in the uh, old days, they used to say that in order to find out whether you were dead or not, they'd put like a window or a mirror in front of you to see if there was some breath that was coming out. And that was how they would determine whether you were dead for sure. And it's this idea of to breathe out your last breath. Uh, and so... Is how it goes there. And, and he gave up the ghost and great fear came upon all them that heard him. And so notice, and I, we were actually reading down to, to nine. And the young men arose and wound him, wound him up and carried him out and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. And Peter answered unto her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yea, for so much. Then Peter said unto her, How is it that you have agreed together to tempt the Holy Spirit, or to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which buried thy husband are at the door and shall carry thee out. And so this putting to the test of the Holy Spirit. And that's, uh, you can't do that to a thing. And so notice the Holy Spirit can be grieved. 
And you see this in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30. All of these are pointing toward the fact that the Holy Spirit is not an inanimate object, that he is a person. He is a person uh, and a uh, viable person of the Godhead. And so in Ephesians chapter, what did I say, 4 and verse 30. Ephesians 4 and verse 30. So you have these admonitions that are given to the Ephesian believers. And again, that you want to know that you don't tell someone not to do something that they're not capable of doing. So that believers, after you are saved, you are capable of doing some of these things. Otherwise, you don't. I wouldn't tell Rick, Rick, don't fly when you leave out the door here. He's not capable of doing it. You don't tell people things that they're not capable of doing. And so here you see these behaviors that Paul is admonishing the Ephesians not to do. Verse 25, wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and sin not, and let not the sun go down on your wrath, or um, uh, let not the sun go down on your provocation. Um, Neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more. But rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may give, uh, have to give to him that needs. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not already, you can translate this, stop grieving the Holy Spirit. And so this idea of grieving the Holy Spirit uh, of God, wherefore you are sealed unto the day of uh, complete redemption. And you have that word for lupe, which is in a compound form, which is you are thoroughly putting, uh, causing the Holy Spirit to be grieved, to be made sad, because he's wanting you to go in one direction, and you're persistently wanting to go in the other, right? And uh, the Holy Spirit's grieving, uh, being made to grieve as a result of that. He can be resisted. Um, notice in Acts chapter 7 and verse 51, and so you see in this context, you have the uh, Stephen who is talking to the Jews, and uh, he's trying to get them to see that there's been a persistent resistance among the nation, excuse me, to the things that God has provided and what God was trying to do, and they have, they have not seen that, and at every, at every turn, they have resisted what God wants. And so you see here in Acts chapter 7, he, he puts this before um, the Jews. And he says, verse 51, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You do always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them, which uh, showed before the coming of the just one, of whom you have now been betrayers and murderers. And so you can see this. And you had the Apostle Paul was right here in the audience as he was talking to these Jews. And notice, and when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. Remember that uh, we had a little uh, statement on our bulletin and our consideration. Um, What is it? Beautiful words are not always... Um, bad or true. Beautiful words are not always true, and true words are not always beautiful, right? So here you are. I mean, he's telling true words here, but do they sound beautiful to them? 
no, <laughs> absolutely not. And he says, who showed before the coming of the just one, whom you have now both been betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels. And notice here, 53, is where you can show anyone who wants to observe law that even the nation of Israel never kept the law. He's telling you right here. You can, here's one of the many scriptures you can show people that they never kept the law. They didn't keep it. And if you're trying to keep it today, you're not going to keep it either. And notice, and they have not kept it. And when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. And they gnashed on him with their teeth. Now, they weren't cannibals. They didn't start biting him, biting him but it was like you're, you're grinding your teeth, right? And notice in 55, but he being full um, of the Holy Spirit uh, looked up steadfastly in heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. But notice back in 51, you always resist the Holy Spirit. There's a, a ideal of standing in opposition or to oppose the Holy Spirit. And so this is, uh, shows you that the Holy Spirit can be resisted, that uh, it is ideal that uh, one want to do something completely the opposite of what the Holy Spirit is trying to get them to do. Uh, he can be insulted. And notice in uh, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 29, all of these are pointing toward the fact that you can actually, um, that the Holy Spirit is a person and that he's not an inanimate thing. Uh, as some, some would actually uh, see the Holy Spirit as being. Notice in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 29. Now here um, is, um, again, Paul is writing to the Jewish believers here. And uh, we'll pick it up at verse uh, six, uh, 26. For if we sin willf willfully after we have received <clears throat> the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised the law of Moses, uh, Moses' law, died without mercy under two or three witnesses. How much sore punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy of him that trodden underfoot the Son of God and has counted the blood of the covenant wherein it was sanctified an unholy thing? And have done despite unto the spirit of grace. And so this, uh, I think it's translated despite here uh, in verse 29. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah, it's actually the word uh, emborious, which is translated, if you have an interlinear, it's the idea of to insult the spirit of grace. And then you see that he can also be blasphemed. And uh, let's look at this one. This is an interesting passage, and a lot of people believe that they can commit this um, offense. But I want to tell you that you cannot commit this offense today. And so there's a lot of people who are scared that they have committed the unpardonable offense, which is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, in order for you to be able to do this, you would have to have the circumstances that are in place here. And what, what is the circumstances? Well, let's look at it and you'll see. In Matthew chapter 12 and verse 31, and I'm going to tell you that it's impossible for you to have these circumstances in place that were in place that caused the Lord to say this. Let's start with verse 22 of Matthew 12. 
There was brought unto him one possessed of a devil, blind and dumb, and he healed him, insomuch that the blind and the dumb both spake and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out devils by, by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. And Jesus knew their thoughts. And he said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan... He is divided against himself. How shall then his kingdom stand? And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out devils by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how else can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except that he first bind the strong man and then he will spoil his house. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathers not with me scatters abroad. Wherefore, I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven. So what were the circumstances? The son was doing miracles the rulers were saying that these miracles were done not by the Holy Spirit, but by Satan. Right. And so now he's saying that anyone who says that. That they would not be forgiven of that. Now, the son is not around to do those miracles today for you to make that attribution today. This is a thing that could have happened during this time, during the son's <coughs> earthly ministry. But you notice this blasphemy is to attribute things to God that he has not said. And so or that he wasn't doing. They were making attributions that what the son was doing was not by the power of the Holy Spirit, but that it was done by uh, Satan. And so but you can see there that the Holy Spirit could be blasphemed. So notice there are different names that you see used for the Holy Spirit throughout Scripture. You have the Spirit of the Lord is used often to identify the Holy Spirit. One of the places uh, you could see that, and we just go back into Luke 4, 4 and verse 18. Now this is always an interesting passage to me because you see the Lord goes into the temple. And it's just interesting how the people respond to him. Now, you imagine it. He goes into... Um, the synagogue, actually, and he reads this passage from out of Isaiah. And because they don't, they're trying to figure out what's going on here. Um, they don't really understand who he is. And he reads this passage and they're just fascinated. Verse 14, that Jesus returned in the power of the spirit into Galilee. And there he went out of, went out a fame of him throughout all the regions <laughs> round about. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up for all to, um, for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he opened the book, he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord, or the spirit belonging to the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. 
to, uh, to, um, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised. And so this idea of the spirit belonging to the Lord or pertaining to the Lord uh, is how he's referenced here. And notice uh, the Holy Spirit. And we talked about this with the son, that the Holy Spirit uh, came upon him during his earthly ministry. And the Holy Spirit was was the one that was causing him to perform these miracles. You just saw it there, right, in Matthew chapter 12, where the Holy Spirit was using him uh, to be able to perform the miracle that was done there. And so here you see this identification. And notice he's called the comforter which in the Greek is the word parakalitos, one who call, calls alongside of, or one who encourages or exhorts. And the Lord uses this term of the Holy Spirit during his upper room discourse, indicating one of the purposes of the Holy Spirit's ministry upon the earth. And so right before the Lord leaves, um, and, I, and we talk about the Gospels and the fact that all of the Gospels, uh, the majority of the Gospels, is doctrine for faith but not practice. When you get to the upper room discourse, the Lord at, uh, in the 13th chapter of John begins to talk about things that are going to happen in the future. Right. And now he begins to talk about this and he talks and says some things about the Holy Spirit. And we can see from this that the Holy Spirit was resident in heaven at the time that the sun was upon the earth. And he talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit and it was predict- predicated upon the sun's departure. During the time that the sons, uh, of the Son's earthly ministry, the Holy Spirit was seated alongside the Father. So you see this changing of positions here all throughout Scripture. So you see that the Son is on the earth, the Holy Spirit's in heaven. When the Holy Spirit came, the Son ascended. Now he's seated at the right hand, and the Holy Spirit is where? He's resident upon earth. And what is he doing upon earth? Well, He's doing a lot of things, but one of the things that we're going to see uh, that he's characterized as is that he's a restrainer, right? That he's restraining is one of the ministries that we see that he has, and we'll, we'll look at that. But uh, notice, let's see, in um, John chapter 14 is where we want to go. John 14. John 14, and we'll look at, um, let's start with verse 20. That's an interesting passage. I mean, this is a huge line of demarcation here that the Lord is making in the upper room. If you do not understand this passage of Scripture, there's a lot of Scripture in the New Testament you are not going to understand. And so notice what he says. In that day, you shall know that I am in my Father, and that ye are in me, and ye in me, and I in you. And so a change of relationships where um, the Son is going to be indwelling in the believer, and the believer is going to be indwelling in the Son. That didn't happen before the day of Pentecost. That wasn't even possible. And yet this is significant to the relationship and the, the uh, maturity of the believer today. The relationship of how the believer operates today, all predicated on this, right? Verse 21, he that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me, and he that loves me shall be loved of my father, and I will love him, and I will manifest myself to him. And just as an aside, when you see the word commandment, again, look at the context, and not every word and every use of commandment is talking about 
the Mosaic Law. And so I say that because people have brought that up here recently, that they've had people who, every time they see word commandment, they pour the meaning, the Mosaic Law in there. And so you can see in other passages that that's not what it's talking about. Actually, you can go over to the 13th chapter and see that, well, just look over there. You can see it in the 13th chapter in verse 34. He actually tells you, he uses an adjective here to tell you that the commandment that he's talking about is new in kind. It's a new kind of commandment. In verse 34, a new commandment. And I would say again, a new kind of commandment I give unto you. It's not like the Mosaic law. And yet, a lot of people are tripped up by that. But going back to verse 22, Judah said unto him, Not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us, and not unto the world? And Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loves me not keeps not my sayings, and the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things. And notice here, and this is why I continue to say that the disciples were told information and that information wasn't necessarily for them to understand at that time. It was something they were going to understand in the future, you see. And bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you, you see. And so this word for comforter, parakaleo, one who comes alongside of and exhorts or encourages. And that was, this is something that's unique to this dispensation. He's called the spirit of truth. Truth looks at the fact of one who sees things as they are. People cannot see things the way that they really are. The Lord um, uh, to the, the, uh, told the disciples that the, the world is not able to receive the spirit because it sees him not. And so notice, um, well, I give you the word there, the retro, uh, which is to see. But the verses, um, actually, let's uh, look at 15, um, 26. Of John fifteen twenty six. So the Lord talks about the. Uh, he goes into the fifteenth chapter and he talks about the importance of the believer abiding, or feeling at ease in this new position that we have in Christ. And so, I mean, this is a significant thing for the believer that as you and I are able to be at ease in who we are and what God has provided. Uh, that that really affects uh, how we're able to operate in the here and now. And so notice in verse 20, we'll pick it up in verse 24 of John 15. If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not had sin. But now they have both seen and hated uh, both me and my father. But this cometh to pass, that the word might be fulfilled, that it is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. And so you can understand that. I mean, the Lord says, if the world, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. We have to have a reason, though, right? 
Why do they hate me? Why do you not like me so much? Well, really, there's no reason. Most of the time when people hate you, they don't even know why they, don't, they hate you. They just, they just do. Verse 26, but when the comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceeds from the Father, he shall testify of me. And, that, um, and he shall also bear witness because he has been with me from the beginning, or really with me, alongside of me uh, from a beginning. And so he's seen as the restrainer. Um, the restrainer is a term used to identify the Holy Spirit's role in holding back Satan's attempt to bring the man of lawlessness on the scene. <clears throat> and so for, many, uh, for a long time, and you see this in Second um, Thessalonians 2, one of my favorite verses, of course, I think everyone here knows that. My son thinks I'm sadistic by saying that, but I think it's a good thing. I mean, because Paul says that you can rest in this assurance. I just take Paul at his word that you can rest in this assurance that this is what's going to happen. Now, notice in verse one of chapter two. Now, we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him. Now, I think this is another veiled um, um, uh, reference to the, the rapture. Uh, our ga- so you don't want to call it a rapture? Let's call it our gathering together unto him. How about that? You don't want to call it that? That's it's, it's the same thing. Notice here, he says, That you be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. Now, there's a technicality here in this context, and it's really, you can call it until the apostasia. Now, I like, there was a guy at Radio Bible Church. Have you guys ever heard of that? Radio Bible Church was in Oklahoma City. Actually, I hadn't even known it was there until later in, in years. But this guy actually wrote an article about it, and he was correct. He actually studied the language. And do you know, for many centuries, people said that the rapture is not going to come until you see apostasy in the church. And it was the translation of this word. And so this word for apostasy actually can actually mean or be translated departure. Now, it's not just any kind of departure. Because of the use of the article here, you could actually translate it, the departure, right? Now, why is this important? I think he's talking about the rapture. Do you know there's always been apostasy from doctrine going all the way back to the early church? I mean, from the time, remember in Acts 20, Paul says, right after I leave, there's people just from a, you're among your own group that's going to take the disciples away from themselves, here he's talking about the departure. It's not going to, this thing that he's talking about, the Holy Spirit's not, that the Holy Spirit's going to do, is not going to take place until the departure, and I would say here, of the church. Now, what is he talking about? We'll see it. And then that man of sin be revealed, right? So you notice that this man of lawlessness is not going to be brought to the scene until the departure. And I know that many of you might want to know, who is it? 
Well, once the rapture occurs, you're probably not going to even be thinking about that. If you want to ask the Lord on the way up, <laughs> you know, maybe you can ask him if you really want to know that. I don't think that you're going to be thinking about it at that time. Yeah. Yes, Don. Yeah, that word, you know, the other thing is to that word for the departure. The only other time that word is used is over in, in Acts 21. And it's where it's translated that you teach the Jews among the Gentiles. To depart from. You teach them to forsake mm -hmm. Moses, to depart from Moses. So it just means to leave something. Right. And you go back to it, and the word is only as good as the context that it's used in, right? And here, particularly with the use of the article, it really uh, it, um, identifies something. And in the context, then, really shows you what he's talking about, right? So the rapture takes place. Here we are. We're going up in the air into a meeting with the Lord in the air. Then the unveiling of this man of lawlessness. And everybody's going to see it. Sorry, we're going to miss it. I know you're disappointed. <laughs> we're not going to miss it. And I know you all have your idea of who that person is right now, if the rapture occurs, but you won't get a chance to know. <laughs> and I don't think you'll care at that point. So then that man of sin, or really, you know, he's never really called the um, Antichrist. And I know that people call him that. He's called the beast. He's called the false prophet. He's called the prince. But he's never not once really referred to as the Antichrist. The ones who are referred to as the Antichrist, you know who's called Antichrist in First John? It's the people who say that Christ has not come in the flesh. God has not come in the flesh. Really, it's your Jehovah Witnesses. It's your Mormons. They're the ones who are Antichrist, you see. Those people are against Christ. But this man is called the man of perdition or the man of lawlessness. He personifies lawlessness. He personifies it. Now notice in verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he as God sits in the temple showing himself that he is God. He's putting on a graphic display in order to prove to himself that he's God, right? And you see that over in the book of Revelation that he's going to do that. Now notice what happens. Remember, remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? And now you know what withholds that he to, uh, might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness. And so here's a mystery that Paul revealed. There were several mysteries that Paul revealed in the New Testament that had not been known up to the time that he revealed it. Remember, a mystery, according to Colossians, is something that's revealed that was not made known to generations, that people didn't know about it, and it wasn't made known to ages. Spirit beings didn't know about it until the time that he revealed it. Now he's revealing to you, and remember, According to 1 Corinthians 2, all of these mysteries were made and given toward people who were maturing. The carnal believer would look at this and it means nothing to him. But a maturing believer would look at this and have an appreciation for what God has revealed here. That this man of lawlessness is not, or the mystery of lawlessness is what you would term it, does already work. In other words, it's already being energized. Even to this day. Now, what, what does that mean? Well, it means that, well, let's finish reading here and we'll, we'll tell you. Only he that now, see that word, let's? And so you have this old English, really you can say, 
only are the one restraining. And so what is the Holy Spirit doing? He's restraining. And so back when I was growing up and you heard this passage taught, many of the people taught that the Holy Spirit is restraining evil in the world. My goodness. Isn't that that's horrible to say that to the Holy Spirit, because it really would make it look like he's doing a horrible job. Right. I mean, do you look like the evil is being restrained today? Evil is not being restrained today. Went to God that it was being restrained. But what what is he what is he restraining? So he's not restraining evil. He's restraining this man from coming onto the scene. So I, back in our hometown, we had one of the, the, the uh, most famous rodeos. I know that you didn't know that about Oak Muggy, Oklahoma. But if you go there in August, the town is filled with this rodeo. And one of the things that you see in the rodeo is that you, you go to a rodeo and you have these bulls and they're just bucking at the scene trying to get out the gate. Have you ever seen that? And they're so anxious to get out the gate, they're just bucking and bucking and bucking. And as soon as they remove that door... Boom, they shoot out the gate, right? That's what's pictured here. Satan is trying to bring this man onto the scene. And the Holy Spirit is saying, not yet. Not yet. And one of the things that you didn't know that's implicit here is that Satan has to have a man to be that man at every time. Because he doesn't know when God's going to allow it to happen. So he has to have that man ready to go at every season. That's the mystery. And that Satan is restraining this man from being brought onto the scene. Is he alive today? Absolutely. Absolutely. Was he alive in past generations? Absolutely. And future generations? Absolutely. <laughs> he always, Satan always has to have a guy ready to be that guy. And, and the thing is, is that the Holy Spirit being the restrainer, he's not restraining evil. And notice here, he's restraining a particular one, the lawless man, as you see him referred to up in, um, in verse uh, 3, the man of, or the son of perdition. Really, that word perdition is the, the, uh, the man, the one, the lawless one. And so he personifies all that uh, that is characterizes lawlessness. And so notice he so going back to seven, he that uh, lets are really restrains will restrain until he's taken out of the way. And so once the rapture occurs, now the Holy Spirit also is taken out of the way. Then what happens? Verse eight. Then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth. And shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even he, him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power, signs and lying wonders. And so Satan is energizing in this guy. And this is going to be a, this is going to be Satan's masterpiece as far as a human is concerned. This guy is going to be a knockout. And you can see how people are going to be enamored with him. They're just going to think he's the greatest thing. And you can see it today how Satan uses all the, the, um, the, um, the various um, things in the world system in order to make someone look great. 
I was just telling my wife, and I won't mention the person's name, that isn't it look like Satan's using this person? They're just out front. You see them on everything now. They're on the front of every magazine. They're on every news show. And what do they say? Oh, look at this person. Isn't she wonderful? She just got People of the Year from Time Magazine, a person of the year. I mean, just constantly everywhere you see her, just a barrage of it. And so, huh? (laughs) Satan can actually lift people up and make people in. And then he tells you, look at this person. Isn't there? Aren't they wonderful? Look at him. He could do it. And uh, and he's going to do it. And so, thankfully, we're not going to be here. We won't really be concerned with it. So then he's called the living water. Uh, Notice in John chapter um, 7 and verse 38 is, I think, where we want to go. Now, some of scripture is kind of funny, and I don't think it was meant to be, (laughs) but people are just funny with how they do things. And so here you see the Lord at the feast and all of the tomfoolery that goes on here with people you know, trying to figure out who he is and whatnot. And so notice in verse 37, in the last day of the great feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Now, was he talking about the fact that you're going to have water flowing in your belly? No, he's saying that the Holy Spirit is personifying this, and you see it in verse 39. But this spake he, and this is a real proof of the fact that there is a line of demarcation again between the Old Testament, or say before the day of Pentecost, and after the day of Pentecost. This he spake of the Spirit which they that believed on him should receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So if the Holy Spirit wasn't yet given, and we'll see as we move forward um, that the Holy Spirit illuminates us, the Holy Spirit fills us, the Holy Spirit guides us. If, if those things were not possible before the day of Pentecost because the Holy Spirit was not yet given, then how can you compare these people over here with what we have today? It, I, you know, I just, it doesn't make any sense to me. This is so simple to see. It seemed like it would be simple. You have a scripture here, right? That says the Holy Spirit was not yet given. And so this idea of living water. And so you see the passage in uh, John 3, 5, which should read, except a man be born of water, even, I would translate it, of the Holy Spirit. He shall not in any way, any wise, enter into the kingdom of God. And so you see that the Spirit of God is a term used uh, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament to emphasize the relationship of the Holy Spirit as being from God versus one from Satan. And then also the Spirit of grace denotes the Holy Spirit's relationship to grace, the grace from God. The Holy Spirit's ministry in the Old Testament saints differed from that to believers in the dispensation of grace. And so this is where it really becomes clear if you uh, have your thinking cap on and you allow the Holy Spirit to show you, he will show you that there's a great line of demarcation. Now, there's a lot of um, confusion among believers, uh, a lot of um, 
people were arguing, and I've talked to Don about this. We've gone over this, that, and we'll show you a chart to look at this. And the real issue is you have a lot of people who believe that the Old Testament saints were regenerated in the same way that you and I are today. Uh, this is a prevalent premise among a lot of church-going people today that they believe that, that David was regenerated just like you and I are, that so was Moses, that he was regenerated just like you and I are. And so there are some fallacies to that, that if you accept that premise, then you accept that there is consistency in how God has done things all the way through, right? And then you might as well put them in the church too, right? I guess you would put them right there in the church with us today too. And so what we will see here is that the Holy Spirit's ministry in the Old Testament was something completely different. That the Holy Spirit's ministry in the Old Testament began with his brooding over the chaotic earth, thrown into a judge state due to the rebellion of Satan. And let's look at that in uh, Genesis chapter 1. This is the first occurrence that you see of the Holy Spirit as he comes on the scene. And so you do see signs of the Trinity all throughout Scripture. And I just think that people ignore the, um, the places where he's mentioned. And so here, and we don't get past um, chapter uh, verse uh, 2 of chapter 1 before we see uh, the Holy Spirit. And so I would say, starting with verse 1 of Genesis chapter 1, in a beginning... It's not really in the beginning there, and you can ask our Hebrew instructor there that there's a, that would be an, an authorist. In a beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you say, well, if you say the beginning, well, there's a particular beginning, and he doesn't start with a particular beginning. He just tells you there was a beginning out there, and in that beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Don't focus on that too much because it'll just blow your mind. Right? <laughs> Verse 2. And the earth, and I would say, came to be without form and void. Uh, and so this idea of tohu and bohu, which means that something chaotic happened here. And darkness was upon the face of the deep, and, uh, the, and uh, here the oceans, and the spirit from God moved over the face of the water. And so here you see this picture of the spirit. So you have this chaotic thing that has happened. And so I think what you see here in the rest of this chapter is a recreation of what was already in existence. And so notice the earth came to be without form and void. What happened? Well, I believe where you can put between verse one and two is Ezekiel 28, right? And Isaiah 14, that Satan rebelled. And now there was a chaos that took place. And so now you see the, the earth in a chaotic state. And so uh, if you go back to, uh, I think it's First Peter, Second Peter 3, if you're, if you're not careful, you'll overlook this. And just go back there for a second and we'll come back here. And as Don says, and we all repeat it now, this is for free. Second <laughs> <laughs> Peter 3. That there were two floods, two universal floods. Did you know that? There were two universal floods. And really, Peter talks about it here in Second Peter chapter 3. 
Now notice in verse 1, he says, This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that you be mindful of the words which were spoken before the holy prophets and the commandment of our of uh, us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lust. Now what do they say? And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, what they're saying is God has never intervened in time, right? Things have gone on from the beginning of time all the way through. So if you think that God's going to intervene in time now, show me where he's intervened in time. He's never intervened in time is what they're trying to say, right? So Peter says this in verse 5. Have you ever argued with someone and they just ignore the points that mitigates against their argument? This is what he's saying they do. Or you can actually say, for they are, he translates it here, for they are willingly are ignorant, or you can say, it escapes their notice. That by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water, and really, it, I think it's translated through the water. So you have this flood here, where, and then he goes and he, he brings in the world system in verse 6, whereby the world system that then was being um, overflowed, uh, really deluged with water, perished. And so this first one in verse 5, I think is pointing right back here to Genesis 2. And notice you see that there is chaos and the Holy Spirit is brooding and he's going over the deep. This is reference to the oceans. And then the, the land then is coming up out of the water. This is not something that was he just created. The land comes up out of the water. It is already in existence, you see. And so notice, and the spirit moved back in Genesis 1. The spirit uh, moved over the face of the deep of the waters, and then God said, let there be light. And then he goes ahead and... Um, and then you see this recreation that occurs. And so you see the Holy Spirit, though, is brooding. That word for moved is to, to brood, um, uh, to really, it's like he's going over the waters and he's contemplating what, he's getting re- what is getting ready to happen is the idea there behind the Holy Spirit. So you see the Holy Spirit early on um, in the Old Testament. Uh, and notice, notice Moses writes in the first verse that God created out of nothing the heavens and the earth. The verse is not disputed inside Christian circles. However, verse 2 has been the source of much discussion. The word, again, I told you in the Hebrew, the letter wow, which is a conjunction that can be translated and joining the first and second verses. So notice verse 2 emphasizes the fact of the earth being thrown into chaos. The verb used in the uh, verse is crucial to understanding the Holy Spirit's involvement. And the earth was or came to be. Now that's crucial. And notice, uh, you know, and I, it's just, I mean, you have people who actually understand the language, who still dispute this, right? And so, one of the things you understand about language is that you your theology is going to drive your interpretation of language, right? What do you believe about scripture? (laughs) 
And so I don't care how much you understand that, but you can look at the language and see the earth was created. The heavens and the earth was created. And then something happened. The earth came to be without form and void. And then I give you that information. 